This is a Federal News Network podcast. The armed services are not seeing much of a change in funding from the 2022 White House budget request. It looks like the Coast Guard is in the same boat, or cutter. The Biden administration's budget request asks for $13.1 billion for the Coast Guard, only $300 million more than in 2021. Federal News Network's Scott Massioni joins me with the details. And Scott, give us the overview here. What kinds of issues is the Coast Guard trying to deal with here? Well, the Coast Guard, much like the Navy, is dealing with a very large maintenance backlog, and it goes into the tens of billions of dollars, and uh, that's something that they've just needed to work on but have not really had the opportunity or the resources in the past to deal with that last year they've had pretty much a fairly flat budget really for the past few years uh we saw in 2018 2019 they had a small bump of a few billion of about a billion dollars and that came from congress not from the president Uh, the trump administration actually tried to cut their funding that year what they're going through right now is a big recapitalization effort it's actually their biggest one since the 1940s trying to move over uh, and, and turn over some of their ships and vessels into you know, the next generation of uh, rescue ships and uh, drug interdiction ships and those sorts of things. Right, and they're, they're about midway through some of the acquisition programs for those new cutters, for example. They have some of them, but they've got a lot more to go. Exactly. And uh, you know, one of the big ones that they're working on is the offshore cutter, which they're planning on building 25 of those. Another one, which, as, as many people know, is the real kind of big one that everyone thinks about is the icebreaker. The Polar Star is the only functioning icebreaker that the United States has. And uh, the second one that is also very old, much like the Polar Star, uh, is, is currently going through a revitalization process and won't be done until 2024. Now, didn't they have two brand new icebreakers on the drawing boards that were ready to have their keels laid down. What's the status right. of those now? This budget has $170 million put away to help with the construction of those two polar security cutters. And then the next one uh, is in the works. A third uh, icebreaker or polar security cutter, if you want to call it that, is coming up on the, on the new drawing board. And they're putting some money toward materials to start the design of that and, and really build it uh, in with uh, the, the best of, of intentions. Maybe they could hijack some of those Russian ones and just take over and re-badge them, paint them over and put the American flag on them. Don't think that would go over too well. And just to get back to the maintenance backlog issues, that's mainly with shore facilities that are fading. There's a lot with with, with facilities, uh, much like within the, the military at writ large, the, the larger military that we don't think of with the uh, Coast Guard. And then there's also, like we said, there's vessels and aircraft that uh, either need to be decommissioned or really need an upgrade. There's a lot of uh, of vessels that they have that are 50 years or older, like we were talking about the Polar Star this year is 45 years old. Uh, it's getting getting up there and uh, it just really is in need of a replacement. And let's talk about the Coasties themselves for a moment. Will they see a pay raise along with other members of the military and civilians in the military? Right. So the Defense Department at this point is asking for a 2.7% increase for all service members and civilians. That will translate also over into the Coast Guard, where they will also get that 2.7% increase. Uh, Now, obviously, this comes with a completely different appropriations bill. It goes through the Department of Homeland Security. So uh, it may have a different congressional uh, sort of bent to it. But, uh, you know, the Coast Guard is asking for the same parity as their brothers and sisters in the Defense Department. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. 
And what else do we need to know about the Coast Guard budget? What else do they list as their priorities? Right. So only about $1.6 billion of this $13.1 billion budget is going toward procurement. The rest of it, uh, except for the mandatory spending, is going toward the recapitalization and readiness efforts that they they really need. So right now they're spending $15 million on expending the extending the Polar Star's life. They're also going to spend $21.5 million upgrading command, control, communications, computers, cyber, and intelligence capabilities. And after that, we're actually going to see the Coast Guard, if they get this budget, adding more than 600 new full-time employees to, to work on readiness. They're going to ask for $92 million for additional crew and support for intelligence systems across the nation. Also, nearly $100 million will go toward aviation readiness, and $12 million will go toward establishing a third cyber protection team that will work with cyber specialists at critical ports of entry. So, uh, you know, something that will work in hand-in-hand with the Defense Department and also with the intelligence community. And what about the information technology end of the Coast Guard? What's in the budget for that? Yeah, they're planning a lot. So uh, along with the $12 million to establish the cyber protection team, they're spending more than $80 million to go toward IT modernization. What that's going to do is replace obsolete equipment and also harden systems against cyber attacks. Now, if you remember, the Defense Department has already built in cyber hardening to its acquisition cycle at this point. And the Coast Guard's probably going to end up doing the same since it's part of the uh, you know, larger intelligence and defense community. Um, that's something that, that ends up costing money, and it's something that they have to channel and signal toward their, uh, their industry partners. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to uh, bring up is that the Coast Guard's also planning, much like the Defense Department, on decommissioning some of its legacy systems uh, that it's hoping to save about $70 million with. What it's going to do is offload some of its C-130H long-range surveillance, surveillance aircraft and give the island-class patrol boats the boot. And like I said, they're hopefully planning on saving $70 million in order to move towards some of this modernization readiness and you know shuffle some of the uh, things underneath that top line. And finally, Scott, on another note, there was a development on the artificial intelligence front from Undersecretary Kathleen Hicks. That's right. So the Defense Department has been really pushing AI for quite some time now. And what they are trying to do is make sure that it's being used ethically. Obviously, people have a lot of concerns about possibly the next Terminator happening or just making sure that these things don't make the uh, a decision that a human being should make. Now, under the Trump administration, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center came up with uh, five governable rules on how to make AI ethical. Uh, part of that is to make sure that there's not an inherent bias within the data, uh, you know, making sure that it's governable and that there's a human within the the, the kill chain, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, Kathleen Hicks put out a memo earlier this week, basically just saying that she agrees with these, that she is pushing them forward within the Defense Department and making sure that AI is going to be as ethical as it can be within the military at this point. Federal News Network, Scott Massioni, thanks so much. Thank you. Check out his stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. 
Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there've been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce, 
uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most. And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. 
So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.